0: Please open uh, with me, if you would, uh, now to the book of Revelation. The Revelation is the last uh, book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 11. Um, We come in our consecutive study of this book to verses 14 through 19. Revelation chapter 11 and verses 14 through uh, 19. Let's hear uh, God's uh, holy word. Uh, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is to come, is soon to come. Uh, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign Forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This ends this Uh, reading in God's word. Now, let's once again uh, seek the face of God in prayer. Uh, Lord, we have just uh, read out of your uh, holy word, and we do pray that as we uh, consider these things over the next 40 minutes or so, O Lord, that you would cause your word uh, to be written on our hearts and to deeply impact our lives. Lord, we long to know you more, to know of the greatness of your purposes and your plans, your plans of the redemption of sinners and of the judgment of this world. Lord, our God, come and impact us by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, what is it that the Christian should desire or long for? What should the Christian desire or long for? You could answer that, uh, that question in a number of ways. You might say, one of the things that the Christian should desire is to serve God in this life. And the answer to that certainly would be a yes. Uh, the things that we do in this life uh, matter, and we are to serve God in our uh, uh, daily vocations. We are to serve God in our various uh, relationships with family and with friends. We are to serve God in the midst of the community in which we live. We are to devote all of our talents and abilities for the service of Christ. We ought to long to serve the Lord. That is one thing. What else should we long for? Well, perhaps you might say, well, we should long to go to heaven when we die. And again, this also is a blessed truth. Absolutely, we, like Paul, should long to depart and to be with Christ which is far better. At the moment that we die, the Christian goes into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to know the fruition of joy and of blessedness in his everlasting presence. Heaven should be our longing. I think as well we could answer this question in a different way also. The Christian also should long or should desire to witness the triumph of Jesus Christ in his final return. Uh, The Bible speaks of this so clearly. For example, in in many places, one of those places uh, being Titus uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 11, it tells us that the grace of God has appeared. And what has this grace done? Well, it's brought salvation for all people. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. But then what else does this grace of God, which has appeared, do? And it does this. It teaches us to wait for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, one of the things that the Christian should supremely long for is what is described there as the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear friends, we ought to be those who look with Eager expectation ahead to that day, not only when we shall be with Christ in heaven, but when the Lord Jesus Christ shall descend upon the clouds and this present world which lives in rebellion to him shall be no more as our Lord Jesus Christ establishes his everlasting kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth forever and ever. You and I, if you are a believer, shall experience this triumph together with the Lord. Whether you die before he returns or whether you living shall go and meet the Lord as well in the air, you shall experience this triumph along with the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that glorious day, we should fervently long. You know, I wonder, has there ever been A particular event maybe that you have anticipated, a particular vacation that you've looked forward to. Maybe if you're in school, you look forward to graduating, or if you are working, you look forward to retirement. If you're engaged, maybe you're looking forward to your wedding day. Uh, if you've got a new job that you're excited about, you're looking forward to that first day on the new job, maybe there's a friend that you've not seen for a while and you're looking forward to a coming reunion with that friend, is there something that you've looked forward to in the past? Well, how much more should you and I anticipate and long for that promised day of the Lord Jesus Christ's return? that's what this passage in Revelation is all about. You might remember at the beginning of our study of Revelation, I said that I believe that the best way to interpret Revelation is that it consists of seven different cycles, each cycle taking us from Christ's first coming to his second coming. The first of those cycles was in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. The second of them was Revelation chapters 4 through 7. Well, the third of those cycles is Revelation chapters 8 through mm-hmm. 11. And so our passage today are the closing verses of this uh, third cycle. In this a cycle, which consists of Revelations eight, Revelation 8 through 11, consisting in the, the seven trumpets that are being sounded, Today, we come now to the sounding of that final trumpet, uh, the seventh trumpet, which is bringing us to that moment of Christ's return. Now, uh, in the rest of Revelation, we still have four more cycles yet uh, to come, and there's going to be a lot more said, and increasingly so, as we come through the book of Revelation, there's going to be a lot more said about the Lord Jesus Christ's return. So this passage is short. short. But what it tells us is still of great importance. Okay? In this section of Scripture, which has contained the blasting of these seven trumpets, the blasting of warning to an unbel- to an unbelieving word world. As the world goes on seeking to live for its own pursuits, as it worships success and money and pleasure there are blasts of warning that we've seen to repent and to turn to God. And this final trumpet blast is this trumpet announcing the return of Jesus Christ in glory. So let's study this seventh trumpet blast today. We're going to do it under three different headings. Uh, Probably a majority of our time will be under the second heading today. Uh, First of all, we're going to consider the loud announcement of Christ's Final triumph in verses fourteen and fifteen. Then, secondly, the elders' response of uh, uh, excuse me, that's four, yeah fourteen uh, yeah uh, yeah fourteen and fifteen. Then, secondly, is the elders' response of heartfelt worship in verses sixteen through eighteen. And then, lastly, the glorious realization of unbroken fellowship with God. Verse, uh, that's in verse 19. So those three, again, they're a mouthful. Uh, the loud announcement of Christ's final triumph. The elders' response of heartfelt worship. And then finally, the glorious realization of unbroken fellowship with God. First of all, the loud announcement of Christ's final a triumph We are told in verse 14 that this third woe, that is a woe to an unbelieving world, is soon to come. But then it comes now in what we find in verse 15. Verse 15, the seventh angel now blows his trumpet. And as the trumpet is blown, we're told that there are loud voices in heaven. And these voices are saying this. That the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I imagine, even as I say those words, that a number of you have Handel's Messiah uh, ringing in your own ears, and what a glorious part of Handel's Messiah it is. In fact, isn't it interesting that the the Messiah is so often sung at Christmas time, and understandably, Uh, So, uh, and the point is, certainly though, that that little baby that is born in Bethlehem, who is one, who will reign forever and ever over his kingdom. That promise was even given at Jesus' birth in Luke chapter uh, 1 and uh, verse uh, 33. The angel says to Mary concerning this one who is going to be born of her, that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Here in Revelation chapter 11, we have this announcement being made that the time is now come, at the very uh, cusp of his return, the time is now come when this kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will finally and forever be established, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, this announcement is made with loud voices. Uh, You might ask, who's making the announcement? Um, We don't know for sure. Angels, probably. Uh, But this we do know is that this coming of Christ is a loud, it's even a a deafening event. In in fact, all the descriptions concerning the coming of our Lord speak of it as as that which is going to be a loud, momentous event. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16 tells us that the Lord Himself is going to descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And so verse 15 here, announcing the coming of our Lord, it is a loud voice which speaks. And this, this cry is a cry for all to hear. It's a cry for us to hear also that when our Lord comes back, It's going to be said that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The angels here are shouting, and they are shouting about the final triumph of Christ over all the kingdoms of this world. But you'll notice, especially in verse 15, though, that it doesn't use that plural of kingdoms but rather it says the kingdom, singular. Some of your translations might even say kingdoms. It was translated that way in the, in the old King James, but the, appropriately in the Greek text, it's just a singular, the kingdom of this world. And that goes along with the Bible's vision that there are fundamentally just two kingdoms at work. One is the kingdom of this world, what we might call the earthly city, with Satan at its head. And the members of this kingdom are all who have not submitted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, bowing to him in repentance and faith. This kingdom lives in disobedience to God, it opposes his reign, it worships idols. Whether these idols be the love of money, or of success, or of popularity, or the idols of false religion. And so you and I, friends, we might look out into the world and we might see great diversity. A diversity of religions and institutions and political structures and values. But the Bible says that amidst this great diversity in the world that they are fundamentally one One under Satan's rule. One as part of Adam's sinful race. One in their opposition to the living God. It is the kingdom of this world. But there is another kingdom. And this other kingdom, of course, is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the kingdom that Christ has established by his saving work. That Christ is the second Adam. He's the head of the new humanity. He is the one who will crush the head of Satan. He is the one who is rescuing people out of Satan's kingdom and bringing them into his everlasting kingdom of love and peace. Colossians 1.13 describes Christ's work in this way, that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, one kingdom, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So there are fundamentally just these two kingdoms that are at work. And this loud shout that takes place here in Revelation 11 and verse 15 is the shout that declares in the midst of this clash of kingdoms that there is a kingdom that has triumphed. And it is not the kingdom of this world, but rather it is the kingdom of our Lord, that is the living God, and of his Christ, the Savior, the mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this final and ultimate triumph of the kingdom of Christ occurs at that moment when Christ returns. Now, the rest of Revelation and the rest of Scripture tells us about some of what will happen on that day. About the final judgment day. And those who are, are, have, have remained disobedient uh, to him. Of uh, being cast forever into uh, uh, everlasting torment in hell. Christ's kingdom being established as a new heavens and a new earth. Where righteousness is going to reign. Friends, one kingdom is going to be entirely displaced. This kingdom of the world has a sell-by date, we might say, an expiration date to it. There's a day of final triumph in which Christ's kingdom alone will be established. So I can hardly think of any more pressing question to ask you at this moment than this. Which kingdom are you part of? Are you part of that kingdom that is going to pass away and ultimately be destroyed under the judging work of Almighty God? Or are you part of the kingdom that will be established and that will, uh, that will uh, exist forever under the eternal kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ? Which kingdom are you part of? And the way that you become a part of this kingdom of Christ is to repent of your sin and to come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the way it is a heart work that needs to go on inside of you. It's not merely saying a few nice things. It's not merely uh, trying to live a decent kind of life. It's not merely even outwardly attaching yourself to the church that brings you into this kingdom, but rather it is through repentance and faith, having heart dealings with the living God in which you come personally to trust entirely the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Have you done that? Are you part of this kingdom that will live forever and ever? There is no more pressing question that you could ever have asked than that question of which kingdom are you part of. If you are not part of Christ's kingdom, won't you come to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ? Uh, even today. You see, if you are living for the things of this world, that kingdom is coming to an end, it says. That kingdom is coming to an end. Let me put it this way. If I were to tell you there are two cars that are sitting out there in the parking lot, and one of those cars, when you hop into it, is at the moment that you get out there someone somewhere on the highway, that, that car is going to break down in the middle of the highway. And you're going to be in great danger. And the other car is a car which is going to uh, keep running and never stop running and running well. Which car are you going to jump into? Well, I hope it's the car that's going to keep going. No matter how many bells and whistles the other one has on it. No matter how fancy it seems or how good it makes you feel when you jump into it. Friends, if that car is going to break down and you know it's going to break down in a moment of great danger, why would you ever put yourself in it? And we can say the same thing about the kingdom of this world. No matter how fancy it seems, no matter how full of present thrills it seems to live for the things of this world, friends, this present world is coming to an end. The kingdom of this world is not going to last and it will leave all who are in it in a moment of the greatest danger. Don't get into that car. Be in a place of safety, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him for salvation. That's the first point, dear friends. We see here this announcement, this announcement of the triumph of Christ's kingdom. Now, secondly... Let's move on. The elders' response of heartfelt worship. The elders' response of heartfelt worship. Okay, the attention now shifts in this passage. After this glorious announcement of the reign of Christ's kingdom, we're now told of 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God and suddenly at the News that they have heard, they fall on their faces, and they worship God. Now, in our study of Revelation chapter 4, we saw that these uh, 24 elders represent the entire redeemed and glorified church, uh, which consists of saints, uh, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, These are saints who have gone to heaven, and they aren't Passive. The glorified church, you'll notice, isn't passive, but they are quick to worship and adore Jesus Christ for the victory that he's won. And so upon hearing this announcement, they immediately fall down in worship. It's their instinct. And then they go on and they praise God. And verses 17 and 18 tell us the reasons that they praise and thank God. Uh, God. We see four different reasons uh, why they especially praise God. They first of all praise him for his power and for his eternity. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Now, interestingly, by the way, that's a reflection of Revelation chapter 1 in verse 8, where it says he is the one who who is and who was and who is to come. But now he is come he has come again. So he is described here as the one who is and who was. Do you see? It's uh, before anything else, what these elders do is they worship God for who he is and for what he has, uh, uh, for, for, uh, for, for who he is and what he has done. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is worthy of praise. This is why, I think, in our own hymnals that we use, the very first part of the hymnal, the first hundred hymns or so, are hymns which focus on the attributes and the being of God. We ought to praise God for who he is. This is why when you pray, your prayers should include, uh, usually first, before anything else, prayers of adoration, praising God and thanking God for who he is in his own being. We ought to be those, like these elders, who praise God for who he is. But the second thing that they praise him for is that his reign is now being revealed. Verse 17, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. That in his great power he has begun to reign. Now, you might think for just a second, He doesn't begin to reign at his second coming. Why does it speak of that language? On the one hand, he's always reigned as God, right? God is the one who is always sovereign. And we would say especially of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he reigned after his resurrection when he ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that's the reign of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of those things are absolutely true, that God forever reigns, that Christ is the mediator of his people, has ascended on high. But friends, there is coming a day when Jesus Christ returns that all opposition to him is so going to be silenced, and it's going to cease, and his sovereign rule is going to become so Evident and apparent to the whole of creation that it is such a drastic uh, thing that we can even speak of it here as him beginning to reign. That the full royal splendor of God's sovereignty is going to be revealed at this moment. And friends, this final and complete reign of our Lord is a worthy object of praise. So they praise God for Uh, His power and eternity, they praise him for his reign now being revealed. The third thing is that they praise him for his wrath against the nations. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and at the end of the verse, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And here we see that God is praised for his judgment of the wicked. Uh, Literally, verse 18 says uh, that the nations were angry, but your anger came. The word is the same. They're raged in wrath in the ESV. And the idea is simply that as the nations, uh, the unbelieving of the world, have set themselves in opposition, or rebellion against God, that God's wrath to them is a just wrath. It's a righteous wrath, a fitting response to human rebellion. Friends, isn't it good we can praise God that in a world that is marked by abuse and oppression and injustice and ultimately in opposition to the King of Kings, we have a God who sees and who will bring this world to its rights. And friends, this we have a God of justice. And that is a reason that we ought to praise him that he is such a God of justice. But the fourth reason for praise is that uh, it's a reason of God's reward of his servants. We see that in verse 18. They thank God for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. Now, I don't think that each one of these words is a different category of people, but as it were, he is mounting up the words, the servants, prophets and saints, saints meaning holy ones, those who fear your name. Okay? These are all words which describe Christians. These are believers. And he's mounting up words. And then he says, in case you don't understand that I'm referring to all believers, he says, both small and great, all who trust in the name of the Lord Jesus are going to receive reward from him. No, it's not a reward of merit. It's not because we are so great. But it's a reward of God's grace. That you and I who trust in him receive far more than you and I ever deserve from his hand. We are given a kingdom. We are given the privilege of being called the sons of God. We are going to experience heavenly reward for all eternity. What a God of abundant provision and of grace. And friends, we are to praise him for the good things which we have received and will receive at his hand. So here you see he is mounting up all these reasons. These elders are mounting up the reasons in which they are praising and thanking God at this moment of Christ's return. Let me just apply this word in a few ways to us. And I especially want us to see a few things about the worship which we offer to God now. A worship that is based upon the worship of these 24 elders who worship at this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first point of application is this. It is that, is that worship must be our first instinct and priority. Worship must be our first instinct and priority. Okay, we see this uh, in the passage as soon as the announcement is made that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, as soon as the triumph of Christ's return is made known, what is the immediate instinct of these elders? But it is to fall down into worship. They want to adore God for who He is and for what He has done. And so it ought to be in our lives too. This is why we set aside the first day of every week as a day of worship. Because we say worship should be our instinct. Having received so much from the Lord, we ought to long to gather with his people and make his praise known. And we ought to do it regularly and we ought to do it consistently, and I dare not worship. In fact, as the week moves along, I ought to be longing and anticipating, Lord, is it soon that I get to come together with your people and worship you yet again? See, that's the instinct of God's people. There's a priority to it. Worship is our most important work. It's It's what those saints who have gone before us are doing and it's what you and I ought to do as well. And similarly, in your own private life, as you go through life and and uh, you experience the Lord's presence, or you experience the Lord's gifts, or as you're meditating on the Lord, turn those things quickly to the Lord in worship. Throughout the day, tell the Lord that you praise him and you thank him and you ought to pray to him and sing songs to him and And delight to make known his praise, because that is the instinct and the priority of the people of God. Worship must be our first instinct and priority. Secondly, this. Worship must be full of reasons for worship. What I mean by this is simply that our worship should contain content. Did you notice that here? The elders say, We give thanks to you, Lord, but they don't just repeat that over and over again, but rather they say, This is why we give thanks. They give reasons, content to what they're saying. And this is why, similarly, in our worship, that we want to fill our worship with the Word of God. That our songs, our theologically, biblically rich hymns that we sing. Our prayers are full of scriptural language. This is why we hear the word of God. It's so that we have, as it were, our minds continually fed with all the reasons that we should praise him, and then we overflow in praise and thanksgiving for who he is. There should be content for our worship and indeed. How can you fuel your praise of God? Well, it is by feeding your minds upon the word of God. You give reason for praise, and then you desire to praise him. That's why in the worship services of this church and in our lives individually, there needs to be a lot of the word of God. Give yourself reasons to praise But then the third thing that I want to say about our worship, not only should it be our first instinct and priority, not only should our worship be full of reasons for praise, but then thirdly, our worship, dear friends, is anticipatory, okay? Our worship is anticipatory. And what I mean by that is what we do now is going to be our eternal occupation. And it will be our eternal occupation at a level that you and I haven't experienced yet. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, when did LeBron James start playing basketball? Was it on an, on an NBA court? No. He began probably in his driveway and in playground courts in the city of Akron, Ohio. Right? When did the Williams sisters begin playing Tennis, the U.S. Open this week, Serena Williams' last U.S. Open. Did she begin, okay, Flushing Meadows, New York, or did she begin with her father on, the, uh, and, on city courts in the city of Los Angeles? It began small, as it were. Well, dear friends, it's as it were, we could put it this way, that what we are experiencing now when we worship God are just the city basketball courts in Akron, the city tennis court in Los Angeles. I love you all, and it is a joy, as it were, to, be, to have, as it were, the beginnings of practice of eternal worship along with you. But friends, that main event is coming when we gather with not just a few other Christians, but with Christians from around the world and Christians of different ages, and we gather in the near presence of God and we make known His praise as we have never made it known before. I cannot wait to witness and to hear and to see this worship of these 24 elders representing the whole of the redeemed church, even to participate in this, of giving thanks with a loud voice to the Lord God Almighty to make known His praise as we've never made it known before. Words cannot begin to describe what this worship is going to be like. And all of the worship that will follow for all eternity. So friends, when we gather in this place, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, don't think that this is the end of it all. <laughs> this is the practice. This is the beginnings of what is yet to come. And so we worship him fully now, heartily now, in anticipation of what that worship is going to be that we engage in someday. Let's move on now to our third and final point. Okay? Our third and final point. And so we've seen this Uh, announcement of Christ's final uh, triumph. We've seen uh, the response of worship by these elders. But now, third and finally, I want us to consider the glorious realization of unbroken fellowship with God. What will happen at the time of Christ's return? Verse 19 describes it this way. It says, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Those symbols of lightning and thunder and an earthquake and hail. These are the things that, as it were, attend the presence of God. You think of God coming down on Mount Sinai to Uh, to give his law. You think even of the moment when Christ was crucified on the cross of of Calvary. This is saying something very significant is happening. And what's the significant thing that's happening? And it's describing it in the language of the temple and of the Ark of the Covenant being revealed. Again, this is symbolic. Uh, What did the temple... Represent? The temple was God's dwelling place among his people. What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? The Ark of the Covenant represented the fellowship, the intimate, perfect, real fellowship between God and his people. Now, in the Old Testament, you will remember that that Ark was contained within the Holy of Holies in the temple. And only the high priest, and he only once a year could come into that. After the shedding of much blood, there was a barrier, a curtain that separated the people from the Ark of the Covenant that represented sweet fellowship with God. Well friends, with all of that background in mind, this is saying at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, friends, that temple is going to be made open, wide open to the people. The Ark of the Covenant, that which was hidden, kept secret, as it were, is now going to be seen by you and by me within that temple. How is it that we can? You think of the mercy seat on that Ark, representing ultimately the atoning blood. Well, friends, we have that atoning blood which has been shed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fellowship which Christ has now uh, secured for us by his blood is going to expe- be experienced in, heaven, in, in, in that new heavens and new earth at the time of Christ's return in a way that is far more richer and far more glorious and far more intimate than you and I could ever think now. This is why uh, in Revelation 21, uh, when as it were, the coming of Christ is even further elaborated in Revelation uh, chapter 21 that as the new Jerusalem representing the church is coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, at that moment a loud voice is heard from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21.3 is just elaborating on the same thing that's found here in Revelation 11 and verse 19. That when Christ returns, the dwelling place of God is now with his people. He will be our God and we will be his. This was the promise that was attached to the covenant of grace Even in the Old Testament, when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, even then, the goal of that covenant of grace was this, that God would be the God of His people, that they should be His people and that He Himself would be their God. And what was the whole goal of the covenant of grace from the Old Testament into the coming of Jesus Christ is now finally in that new heavens and new earth going to be realized and realized supremely. You and I, dear friends, are going to be in the presence, the real intimate presence with fellowship with the Lord himself. What a day that is going to be. Do you long for that day? Do you see why when we began today's service and I asked, what are the things that you long for? What are the things that you desire? I hope that you do desire to serve Christ in this world. I hope that you do desire upon death to go to heaven. But I hope that you really, really strongly desire that glorious day of Christ's final return and triumph. Do we look forward to it? Do you long for it? Can you wait? I hope that you can't. It's going to be a glorious day. Well, let's uh, pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for the vision which Revelation 11 gives us of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, his final triumph over the kingdoms of this world. Lord, we pray that if any does belong still to the kingdom of this world, That is, that they are living for the things of this world, that they have not looked in faith to Jesus Christ. Lord, would you convert their hearts even today? Lord, would you give to us a desire to worship you? Even as these 24 elders bow down before the throne at the sound of Christ's return and worship, Lord, might we even today worship you Lord, might you give us a longing for that time when we shall know you, even as we are fully known. Lord, bless this to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.